Hello and welcome to The Best Book Ever, the podcast where we get to know interesting people by asking them about their favorite book. I'm your host, Julie Strauss, and I am currently on vacation. So as you listen to this, I am, with any luck, swimming in the Sea of Cortez or eating my body weight in tacos. Now, we all know that when I say swimming in the Sea of Cortez, what I really mean is I am sitting on the beach reading a book, and then I will tell everyone that I went for a long swim. This is who I am. We both know this about me. It's fine. So just be cool about it, okay? Okay. So even though I'm not working this week, I didn't want to leave you without a book to read. And I wanted to find something that was short enough that it didn't feel like a burden in these hot waning days of summer, but was also a totally unputdownable story. So I reached into the archives to bring back one of my favorite episodes and guests. Lisa Marie Cabrelli is my dear friend and one of my favorite readers. When people who are new to this podcast ask me where they should start, I almost always recommend this episode, as it is one of my personal favorites. The thing about this episode is that the book itself is kind of a hard sell at this point in our history. Severance by Ling Ma is a post-apocalyptic pandemic book. In fact, it took Lisa Marie a long time to convince me to read it, because I, like everyone else, was absolutely exhausted by anything related to pandemics, and I couldn't bear dedicating reading time to one. But that attitude turned out to be a mistake, because Severance, like all good literature, is not necessarily about the plot device, but about what it means to be a human when that plot device is occurring. And it's a book that I eventually listed as my favorite read of 2021. Now, attentive listeners know that we're very careful about not giving away spoilers on this show, but when Lisa Marie told me her interpretation of the ending of Severance, I knew that I had to share that part of the conversation with you, because I read it differently. But don't worry, I move the spoiler part to the end of the episode, and I give a very clear warning when it's coming. So if you haven't read the book, I'm not going to ruin it for you. Also, before you ask, this book has nothing to do with the sci-fi series of the same title that is currently running on Apple TV. That show's good but it's not as good as this book. So, my dear bookish friends, I'm raising a vacation-sized margarita to you, and I cannot wait for you to hear why Lisa Marie Cabrelli thinks Severance is the best book ever. Hi, Lisa Marie. Welcome to the Best Book Ever podcast. Hi, Julie. Thanks for having me. Many moons ago, when we first discussed you coming on this podcast... You said you didn't want to do it because you know me very well, and you thought your favorite book would scare me too much. That's right. Then you changed your mind to a different book, which is about a pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) Explain yourself. Yes. Okay. So I will explain myself. So my favorite book ever is a popular fiction book, and it is The Stand by Stephen King. It is really, really, really long. And so not only is it scary, but it's really long. And I didn't want you to have to read it right now in the middle of a pandemic. And so, but, but I am a huge lover of dystopian fiction. And so, and I also am a huge lover of literary fiction. And so I thought I would give you a little bit of the best of both worlds, which is why I picked the book I picked. Why do you like dystopian so much? I really don't know. I I just, I knew you were going to ask me that question. And I thought, how am I going to answer this? And I 
I just don't know. I, I, I there must be some kind of like psycho weird psychological thing that I'm suffering from that I always go to dystopian fiction. But I love it. I love uh, dystopian films as well. Love it. Do you? Is it a thing where you put yourself in a situation and decide how you would survive? Is that part of the appeal of it? No, I think probably part of the appeal is the. Um, th- the people. I'm so, I'm really, really interested in people and relationships. And I think that dystopian or post-apocalyptic fiction really puts people in these environments where relationship becomes the key thing to examine. And so I just, and it's not always, um, I mean, I, I like, you know, romantic comedy and stuff like that too, for that, for that same reason, but it's not, but it's not the same as you're put into this environment and how does it impact you as a human and how does it impact you uh, with your relationships with other humans? I am not exclusively a dystopian fiction reader. I mean, I will read the back of a cereal box if I have nothing to read, (laughs) right? Like Uh I will read any book that you hand to me. I don't care if it is like, you know, trash or, or, classical literature I just don't care so it's not exclusively dystopian it's just one of the genres like I'm not a a genre I'm not a genre loyalist it's just one of the genres I particularly enjoy but you know I read every other genre so I could I but I could read dystopian after dystopian after dystopian. they don't exhaust me okay that's the key right there because they exhaust me so I wonder I wonder what's the difference in a brain that makes it so physically exhausting for some and not others. But do you think that Severance, which is the book we're going to talk about, do you think that's really about the end of the world? Because I don't think it is. And that's maybe like why it didn't exhaust me. What do you think it's about? Oh, it's about so many things. It's it's one of the most genre-crossing books I think I've ever read. It's also like a meditation on the human existence of like right now in the midst of this capitalist, politically divided, you know, cynical world that we live in. So it's a deep meditation on like where we are and what we are and are not doing about it. That's what I thought. Tell us the plot of this book. So the plot of the book is you have Candace Chen, who is really importantly uh, um, an, an immigrant to the United States. She came to the United States from China when she was six. Um, her parents were, her mother was desperate to go back to China. Her father was a classic American immigrant, right? So she's first generation American. And um, she is probably about 30. I mean, I don't think they ever say her age. Mm-hmm. And she works for a um, uh, she works in production for a publishing company, and she actually works in the Bible department. So mm-hmm. she is responsible for the project management of the production of Bibles. And she is working in this sort of semi-dead-end job with her sort of semi-dead-end boyfriend in her sort of semi-dead-end life when um, a bacterial um, virus gets carried across from the manufacturing facilities of China uh, across the world globally, um, specifically um, into New York City where she lives. And slowly, 
um, or maybe not so slowly, I guess, everyone around her begins to die, but in a really, truly unique way, because what the virus does is it makes somebody what they call fevered. And these fevered people um, actually revert to repetition and routine. So as they get fevered, they lose their their cognizance and they just start repeating activities that are extremely familiar to them over and over and over and over again until basically they rot and die. So um, in the beginning of the book, Candace has already actually escaped New York and she is with a group of um, escapees or survivors who are headed, who are led by this really ridiculous man called Bob, and they're headed to what he calls uh, the facility, which he thinks is a safe zone where they can sort of live out this post-apocalyptic nightmare. Uh, There's like so many elements that were super interesting to me, right? The one thing that I really got like sucked up in, and I want to ask you, I really, there's so many questions I want to ask you, Julie, about this, <laughs> what, what you think. But um, one of the questions I got sucked up in is this idea of routine and repetition. Mm. Like it's a real solid theme throughout the book, not just amongst the fevered, but amongst everyone who is alive, right? I mean, Candace mm-hmm. herself, she doesn't do anything outside of her routine. I mean, I don't know how many times um, Ling Ma wrote the line in the book, I got up, I went to work. Mm-hmm. You know, it must be in there like 20 times. So although routine and repetition is the thing that actually kills um, the fevered in the end, it kind of like says to me, well, isn't that the thing that kills everyone in the end? Like, aren't we already living in this capitalistic society? I mean, she how many brand names does she mention in this book, right? I mean, brand is a huge thematic principle of it as well. Like this idea that all we care about is consumption. And the reason we 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 participate in these routines and this repetition is just so that we can continue to consume until we die, right? So mm-hmm. I, I'm fascinated by this idea that we are both fevered and unfevered. The, the, even the unfevered are fevered. Um, one of the things that people are really, really frightened of is change, like really frightened of change. And in order to make change, you have to make choices. And you see very clearly in this book how few choices, actual choices, people really make. And this routine and this repetition is like this lure of having something to do so that you don't have to think for yourself about what you should do differently, right? And in addition, we're, I, in particular, I'm making it sound very bleak, but I, I have to say, I probably should have said this at the beginning. I laughed out loud yes. many times. I thought it was an incredible trick. There was one line at the beginning where the, the band of sort of, I don't know that you'd call them refugees, but these sort of survivors who have banded together and are, you know, raiding all of the houses looking for supplies and they're debating where to go. And the one woman goes... I'm not going to the suburbs. I'm not going to live in the suburbs. (laughs) It's funny all the way through. And, you know, one of the lines that got me in the beginning, it's probably in the same conversation, is when she's talking about Bob and how he has his arm in a sling from carpal tunnel syndrome. (laughs) You know, like we're in the middle of this pandemic and this doofus guy who's like some (laughs) nerdy IT guy has carpal tunnel syndrome. 
the other line that I underlined, um, the sheer density of information and misinformation at the end encapsulated in news articles and message board theories and clickbait traps that had propagated hysterically through retweets and shares had effectively rendered us more ignorant, more helpless, more innocent in our stupidity. God damn. Yep. Because how many times in the last year have you said, I say that out loud almost every day. Why are we all so stupid? Right. Why is nobody listening? And yet all we do is consume things and information. And yet we are so dumb. Are we dumb or are we, are we dumb or are we divided? I think we're dumb. I think we don't understand how to <laughs> process information. I think we don't understand how to parse what's true and untrue. We are literally debating what is true with our neighbors. That yeah. to me is the yeah. dumbest conversation you can have. <laughs> no, I'm 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 in 100% agreement with you on that. Absolutely. This reminded me a bit of Station 11. And I thought you kind of disagreed with me. Yeah, I do, because I don't think Station Eleven is a is an apoc- post apocalyptic dystopian novel necessarily either. I mean, I know it; it's been you know in, put in that particular genre, but um, I don't know. I think Station Eleven is the the, the one. I think the one um, element that that connects the two books is this idea of nostalgia, the danger of nostalgia. Because I think there's a line in Station Eleven where the main girl, you know, the young girl who's mm-hmm. in the theater company, I think some one of them asks her, like, how can you not be, you know, nostalgic? How can you not be thinking about the way that life was before? And she says something like, um, if you, if the younger you were, the less you remember, the better off you are you know, because mm. you don't remember what life was like before. And so therefore you cannot be, be nostalgic. And I was thinking, you know, in, in severance, like if people just would give up on what was before, then maybe they wouldn't get fevered, you know, everyone. I mean, even Bob going to the mall. I mean, it's the most, <laughs> you know, like th- this facility when he's talking about it in the beginning, you think it's like, you know, this, he's, he's got, he's got a share in it. He's bought it. You're thinking he's one of these yes. preppers who has this like underground facility. Yeah. That's exactly what I thought. Some sort of nuclear fallout shelter or something. Yeah. And it's the mall, right? But he's nostalgic for that. He can't make any choices to move forward. He can't like think of something different because right. the mall is what he, if, to him represents the kind of life that he wishes he was still living. I mean, don't you ask yourself throughout the whole entire uh, book, why is everybody staying with Bob? (laughs) Right. Right. Because he's convinced them he can lead them to safety. To to back to greatness. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So is there any function then that of nostalgia? Is there any good function of nostalgia? And I'm interested to hear your response to this because... You are a digital nomad. You are a person mm-hmm. who moves around a lot, who's very intentionally not attached to places and possessions. So I'm super curious what your take on nostalgia is. Well, I'm also an immigrant as well. And I thought that was another interesting aspect of the book was the immigrant aspect of it. You know, I know this book represents nostalgia as a really bad thing, uh, and I, I don't agree with that. Um, but, 
you know, it's also a really bad thing to have no nostalgia, to be totally and completely focused on the future. And I think it's really interesting that a Chinese immigrant with an experience in China wrote a book that was so focused on, so, so unfocused on the future. There's no, nothing, there's no future in this book at all. And did you notice that that was the only place where her writing really was lush was when she was describing the nights in mm-hmm. China? Because that's where all the senses are for her. The smell and the feel of the air of China from her childhood is the only thing she really conjures up with any pleasure. However, she has the immigrant version of nostalgia. Tell me what that means. I think that growing up as an immigrant in the U.S., I had a really deep sense of nostalgia for how I grew up in a small farming town in the south of England, right? And I wanted it to be exactly what it was when I grew up there the first time I went back 10 years later. And it wasn't. It wasn't anything like what I remembered. I didn't have any consistent experience there. So I didn't get to watch it change. And she was the same. She didn't go back to China until she started this job in her 20s. So again, probably, you know, 10, 15 years after she'd been to China. And I think you recognize that that nostalgia is painted by, I guess, childhood. You know, you didn't, you, you have a different perspective on things when you're a kid. I know people who have lived in the same city their entire life. And when they go to their childhood homes, they're always stunned that it's so small. Yeah. So what, what about, what about moving countries makes it a more profound experience? Well, because you miss the cultural changes, right? You miss oh, not see. just not just how things have changed very specifically and individually for you, but how things uh, have changed for the whole entire country, and also how your perspective on the country is a uh, is a foreigner's perspective. You know, I was really surprised when I came back to the UK for the first time that I didn't really, I wasn't really British anymore. You know, I, I was American. Do you think of yourself as an American now? Um, I think of myself because I haven't lived in, because I have been a digital nomad since 2012, right? Which is nearly 10 years. I, and I've lived, and I live now, you know, in Scotland and Europe and the States. I would consider myself just kind of a mishmash. However, I cannot escape my really, really American personality traits. I mean, and and they are extremely obvious still in the UK, just as my UK personality traits are very obvious when I'm in America. So you never really like fit anywhere perfectly. What are the obvious ones when you're in Europe? What sets you apart? Um, I am very straightforward, <laughs> right? Uh-huh. I mean, honestly, I sometimes see like British people who are not straightforward at all. Um, I sometimes realize I've been too American when I say something. <laughs> I, I don't, you know, I state my opinions. I, I, I don't hold back. I'm, you know, I, uh, I tell, you know, the, the uh, waiter when I'm not happy with the service. I mean, not in obno- an obnoxious way. I'm a very nice person. Yes. But I'm just saying that, you know, sometimes like 
where my husband will be like, oh, it's okay. We can just leave, you know, thank you very much. That was all lovely. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm not like that. I remember we were out um, with our, a, a big group of Scottish friends and I, she's one of our friends said something to me like, you're just so open, you know, like, and I think that's a very American thing. I'm, I'm not reserved like British mm. people are. So what sets you apart when you are in the States? I'm too reserved. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. So you can't get it right in either place? And I I think that that is kind of where Candace, why Candace will never fit in anywhere in this this book. Because she, she already knows that she can't fit anywhere. I mean, Candace stays on in a dying city for a year because they have promised her a bonus that would make her parents proud. Her job is in the Bible division Mm -hmm. of this publisher. And she even says it is the ultimate remarketing campaign. It is literally the exact same item being repackaged over and over again. And, you know, she has one client who wants a gemstone Bible and another yep. client who wants this kind of cover, but it's the exact same content. She's a factory worker. She is. Do you remember when she sends an email to her sort of equal in China in the factory? She sends this guy a note and she says, I really want you to give me a quote on this job. And he basically comes back and says, "Uh, everybody's dead. (laughs) Right. Right. And she won't give up. She goes back and she sends him another note. She says, well, yeah, I understand everybody's dead, but come on, you have to be good at your job and you 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 kind of have to give, right. You've got to give me a proposal. I mean, this is why this book is so funny. And the guy basically comes back and says, Look, here's my advice. Your job is not important. What you do is not important. Nothing right now in your life is important. You must leave wherever you are and go somewhere safe. You're a factory worker just like me. And that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about like this whole lack of choice. Like she doesn't choose to stay to get the bonus. She doesn't choose that. She Mm -hmm. does, she she not chooses that. She just chooses to not do anything. She just chooses to just keep going. Even leaving New York, she doesn't make that choice, right? She basically finds out that she can't get back into her building because she locks herself out, right? Right? She locks herself out. She forgets her key card and she, she can't make that choice. The only choice she makes in the entire book, well, actually she makes two choices. She makes one in the very beginning when she, when she realizes how sucky her job is and she decides to leave it. She goes to Bendel's and she sees that all of the lingerie in the lingerie section is made in China, right? Yes. And she just, it's very illuminated for her. All of a sudden, she's like, wait a minute, nothing is ever going to change. So why should I? What are you supposed to come out of this with? I, I think you're supposed to come out of this exactly the way that I came out of it, which is desperate to just talk to somebody about these <laughs> ideas, right? Yes. I think it's just supposed to make you th- think and really like ponder on whether or not you are Candace. Which I think the book is saying we all are. We all are. We all are. Absolutely. I mean, it's so, so it's right there. You know, the fevered kill themselves with routine. Well, that's the other thing I wanted to ask you about, Julie. What? Um, How did you feel about Bob killing the fevered? Okay. That was so complex. 
he is your classic, like mediocre white man, Mm -hmm. right? Who in this event happens to have the, the, the confidence of a mediocre white man who doesn't know anything about anything and wants to take them to a mall, but everyone follows him because he's, mediocre white man who's telling them that (laughs) right i mean but don't we do that all the time we've elected a whole hell of a lot of them as presidents and why do they stay i mean that's the question that kept on my mind the whole time why do they stay they Mm -hmm. stay because number one they're nobody in this book is good with making choices no one can act on a choice and number two because he's the mediocre white man who's showing confidence I don't think he was fevered. I think his reason was power and that he could. He killed them because he could. And he had he could moralize it to himself that that was the right thing to do. And so therefore, hey, it's pretty fun to shoot people in the head when I've always had a gun and wanted to shoot people, wanted to have power, even though I'm like a dude who probably has never had sex with anybody. <laughs> right? Hey, I've got a gun, you know? Can't use my penis. Might as well use my gun. I will never get over it. We can laugh so hard at this book about this topic. (laughs) What do you think was the scariest moment? I'm wondering, because I have one. The moment of the housewife constantly setting the table, because obviously, because that one hit very close to home. Maybe I already am fevered. I just keep setting out these fucking dishes every night. (laughs) I don't know. Oh, God. Oh, that's funny. What's your scariest part? Uh, It was when the elevator breaks. Oh, my God. Yes. Because it makes you think about all the things that we're dependent upon that we forget. Everything she owned was already moved into that office. Yeah, her whole life was inside. Because she's literally severed, again, Mm -hmm. from everything. Severance was such a good name for the book, too, because Severance is about everything it's like she's severed from her home country she gets severed from her life in new york she gets severed from her job she's you know severed from her boyfriend mm-hmm. it's just it's the message throughout the whole entire thing and did you know that ling ma wrote this while she was living on her severance package no that is so good yeah she got laid off and she and all of her friends encouraged her to take the time that her severage severance package payment allowed her and finish her novel and so she did good for her i hope she keeps going i hope she's writing another one me too i think she's fabulous lisa marie tell me what you're reading these days when i look at my books like there is a huge number of tana french in my bookshelf because i did a master's degree in crime fiction. And for me, I love the people who can make that real connection between popular genre fiction and the literary feel of a book. Mm -hmm. And Tana French does that with crime fiction. It's literary crime fiction. It's beautifully written. It's one of those books that, as my husband doesn't read fiction, and so it's one of those books that I have to keep putting the book down and saying, wait, can I just read you this? (laughs) Like, he doesn't really care. Like, you know, but I'm like, can I just read you this like couple of sentences? Because it's so beautiful. So, so just a couple of weeks ago, I had a uh, crime fiction writer, Amy Austin on, and she also highly, highly recommended Tana French to me. So this is two people I really trust who have told me I need to. Okay. So I'm doing this. I, I have one of her books. I have the witch elm here. So oh, that's one of my favorites. Okay. <laughs> that's one of my favorites. That's another one that like, when you read, you'll want, uh, you'll want to call me up and say, let's talk about this book. 
because that one had some really, really great thematic elements that you won't stop thinking about as you're reading it. All right. You've, you've got yourself a date. I've, I've got okay. you penciled in for a phone call to talk about the witch elm then. <laughs> okay. It's a big one. It's a thick one, but it's good. Yeah. It looks like a good one to dive into over a weekend. Yeah. Lisa Marie, where can my listeners find you? Um, they can find me um, on, if they're interested in pictures of my travels, uh, which will be commencing in a few weeks, uh, they can find me on Instagram um, at Laptop Life Lisa. And if they're more interested in my nerdy, like, um, you know, knowledge management, like Rome research stuff, they can follow me on Twitter <laughs> um, at laptoplifelisa.com. And if they're interested in reading my rom-coms, um, they can just find me at laptoplifelisa.com. I want to thank you for joining me today. I knew this was going to be a fantastic conversation. And um, I hope you'll come back anytime you have a book you want to talk about. Oh, I always want to talk about books, so <laughs> I, I will. Hi, friends. It's Julie just popping in to let you know that for the remainder of the podcast, we will be talking about the end of Severance. So if you're not a fan of spoilers, hit the pause button, go finish the book. I know you want to. And then come back and listen to the end. So the only choice she actually makes is leaving the facility. And my question is, does she really make that choice? Or is she fevered? And is she trying to get back to her routine? That's what she wants. She wants to be in the city. It's mm -hmm. this constant pull back to, you know, your routine so that you don't have to make decisions. Like even when Can Candace never makes decisions, right? The reason she's in her job is because somebody gave her that job. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. The reason she doesn't go with her boyfriend when he says he's leaving New York is not because she's making a choice. It's just because she's not making a choice. Right. So right. she just finds this whole idea of repetition so comfortable. So is Candace fevered or is she, is she not? Oh, my God. I never even thought of it that way. <laughs> I mean, she's not like literally fevered in the book, right? But the question I wanted to ask you is if we can talk about the end. In my mind, the ending, which everyone is so confused about, it's like, for me, as soon as I closed the book the first time I read it, it was so clear. Candace is now fevered. As soon as she left the facility, she is fevered. You can tell she gets out of the car and she just starts walking towards the city because that's the routine she knows. That's where she feels safe. She can't make any other choice. I did not read it like that. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> hang on. Hang on. I have to catch my breath. <laughs> no, that was not what I read. So you think that because the car broke down and she just like sort of blindly got out and kept walking. Yep. Now, see, I, Chicago, right? I saw it as... Because she has no attachment at all. Yep. Literally, she has no None. parents anymore. She has no real country where she feels at home. And so she was able to just walk away from this relatively safe facility. I mean, Bob was a crazy person, but, you know, she, it was a safe place. They had food, they had shelter, they had an entire mall, right? Mm -hmm. And, 
she had no attachment to it or no need to be around them or no need to stay in her, where was she staying? In the Occitane store. Yeah, in the Occitane, yeah. <laughs> She's so rootless that she could walk away from it. And I thought she was not subject to the fever because, mm-hmm. because there was the one woman who was fine until she went to her childhood home and saw her closet. And then she right. became fevered, right? right? And I kept thinking, like, Candace is never going to fall for This is never going to happen to her. She is Because she has so, no nostalgia. She ha- Right. She has no nostalgia. And she's completely severed. That's the, That was the word. It was on every page to me. It like, was. Yeah. She's just severed from everything and everyone. So I thought she's going to remain unfevered forever because she's so completely rootless and unattached. And I think that that is a perfectly reasonable and sensible way of of looking at it. I mean, I I could go that way as well, but I got stuck again on this idea of nostalgia, right? So it seems like the the disease might be in you, in people, but sometimes it gets triggered by nostalgia, right? Mm. But it's not nostalgia for a time. It's actual actually nostalgia for a place because Ashley, she doesn't get fevered until she goes back to her childhood home. And Bob doesn't actually get fevered until he goes back to the mall. But the two, and I mean, I may be going way out on a limb here, but this is like what was running through my mind, is that the two exa- those two examples that we got in the book of nostalgia triggering fever were both of people returning to a place that has extremely um, bad history for them, right? Mm -hmm. We learned that Ashley's parents were horrible and that she had no childhood. And then we learned the same of Bob, that like her only refuge, right, was in her closet amongst her prom dresses or whatever it was. And for Bob, his only refuge was escaping from his abusive household and wandering the mall. Right. So those are the two examples that we get. And, you know, I kept thinking uh, along your lines, well, Candace is never going to get triggered because she has no bad place to go back to. Right. Because actually the only nostalgia she really experiences in the whole entire book is for China. Right. That was her refuge, really, like the first six years of her life. Mm-hmm. And because we, we find out very clearly that when she's six and she moves to the United States, that her mother is a completely different person. She doesn't know her anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. And she never has a relationship. But Candace brings her mother back at the end of the book mm-hmm. for a really long time, right before she leaves the facility. So is Candace actually, is her nostalgia? her like bad place, this relationship with her mother that actually gets resolved during that time in in the facility. I mean, I am like deep into research right now for a creative writing PhD. So I'm reading all kinds of like theory and stuff. And, you know, this is the whole concept of the death of the author, right? Which is that Ling Ma has given this to us as readers and the meaning making happens within ourselves. And so we can make the book whatever we we want it to be so your perspective is no you know right more right or wrong than mine or you know joe smith from from down the block 
you know, but, and that's what's so great about this book is that there are so many things to think about. I hope you enjoyed revisiting this book as much as I did. Lisa Marie and I are actually cooking up some plans for this podcast in 2023. So if you enjoyed this conversation, I know you're going to be excited to hear what we have coming up next. So stay tuned. Until then, links to everything we discussed are in the show notes or at my website, bestbookeverpodcast.com. You can find me on Instagram at bestbookeverpodcast. And if you have a book you want to tell me about, click on the Be a Guest button, either on my website or Instagram bio, so we can chat. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it with someone you love and rate it on your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to hit the follow or subscribe button. I will be back at work next week with a brand new episode. I hope you're taking really good care of yourself this summer. I hope you're reading and rereading some excellent books. Thank you for joining me today. And I will see you at the library.